singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is the author of the Quantum Thief trilogy, Hanu Ryanimi. Welcome, Hanu. I'm so happy to have you on my show. Thank you, Nicola. Very pleased to be here. Fantastic. So before we begin our conversation today, I would like to make an announcement. And that would be that uh, uh, we are going to give away three books today to our audience. And those are the books. Uh, it's the third uh, part of the trilogy called The Causal Angel. Um, and those books will be given away to the best uh, tweets or best uh, quotes on uh, under the YouTube uh, video. So if you guys uh, actually pay attention and uh, write some of the, the quotes that you find uh, uh, interesting during this conversation with Hanu, I will be very happy to send you a book. Now, unfortunately, we are limited to sending those books mainly to the continental United States, but I will make an exception on one of them, and the third one I can send anywhere across the world on my own expenditure. So, with that, uh, without further ado, let's uh, just uh, jump right in. Hanu, can you please introduce yourself um, and what you do for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with your work? Okay, so um, my name is Hanu Rajaniemi. I'm originally from Finland, as you may or may not be able to guess from the name, but I have actually uh, lived for the last 13 years uh, in the UK. Uh, my background is in mathematics and theoretical physics, so I studied uh, mathematics in the University of Oulu and also University of Cambridge and did my PhD on string theory. Uh, around the same time I started write, writing uh, science fiction, uh, so, so initially some short stories and, and uh, uh, later on uh, the novels that uh, Nicola mentioned, so starting with uh, The Quantum Thief and its sequels, The Fractal Prince and The Causal Angel, which uh, uh, to my delight and surprise have been, have been very well received. Um, along the way, I also uh, co-founded a mathematics research company, uh, which uh, called Think Tank Maths, which uh, solved some industrial mathematics problems across a variety of sectors, sort of ranging from uh, space to to life sciences to the financial services and uh, many other things. And um, uh, uh, after that, I, uh, amongst other things, attended uh, Singularity University last year. So I'm a graduate of the. Uh, Singularity University GSP 13 program. Uh, as a result of that, I've uh, gotten involved uh, with another company called uh, Helix Nanotechnologies, which is trying to do some uh, quite exciting things with DNA. Uh, so currently, I divide my time between that and uh, writing more books, and I'm working on sort of the first book uh, beyond the Quantum Thief trilogy at the moment, which uh, we can also talk about later. Wow, you you even preempted a bunch of my questions here. <laughs> so so let me let me take it step by step though, and uh, uh, take one issue at a time. So you mentioned that uh, you have a PhD in mathematics. Uh, mm -hmm. More specifically, that's uh, in string theory. So let me ask you: Are you first and foremost a mathematician, a physicist, or a sci-fi author? <laughs> uh, I guess it's. Uh question that is becoming increasingly hard to answer. I mean, I, I kind of find myself existing in this funny quantum superposition of, of doing 
doing many things. Now, um, I guess uh, my, my training certainly is in mathematics. And uh, I mean, string theory, of course, is uh, very much uh, concerned with the physical world as well, or, or, or tries to be. So it tries to be a theory of quantum gravity and explain some fundamental aspects of the universe. But it, it, it is also, and, and we can talk about whether it's successful in that or not, but um, uh, it is also the area where uh, mathematics and physics really uh, collide and, and interact. And, uh, and uh, so I guess my, my mathematical work was really uh, getting some inspiration from pure mathematics and, uh, and trying to generalize those concepts to, to solve some problems that come up in string theory. Now, then, uh, now uh, after my PhD, I then uh, very much sort of became combination of uh, an entrepreneur and, and a more applied mathematician. So, so my mathematical work was more, more oriented towards the kinds of problems that came up in the sectors I, I described. But then there was also this element of um, doing all the things that are necessary to, to build a company where I think being involved in a startup, you, you cannot be one thing uh, at, uh, at all, but, but you, you need to do whatever is necessary, whether it's sort of uh, cl cleaning the offices when, <laughs> when, before, before important clients show up or, or uh, working on the technical side or recruiting people or, or helping, uh, helping staff uh, and researchers with their issues or, or, or trying to sell, sell research products to clients. So, so that's, that sort of uh, phase certainly I think uh, took away from any from me any single definite defining word I could come up with, um, and um, I, I guess uh, writing is is sort of very much uh, at the moment what I'm what I'm known for. I think most people would would associate me with being being a science fiction writer, and it's certainly very important to me. To me, I I, I, I mean I think writing becomes like this inner need that that uh, one has to satisfy. I think most writers would um, sort of um, subscribe to that view. Uh, but it's sort of not the only thing I want to do. I mean, I want to to keep doing doing things which are uh, in in some connection to to real life science and technology. And so, so the current startup very much uh, gives that opportunity to to also try to uh, understand new problem domains. So, so in this case, biology, and and uh, obvious obviously with a certain mathematical computational bent to it as well. But uh, uh, yeah, so yes, I, I actually wanted to ask you to start backwards and, and, and tell us about the most recent uh, engagement of yours with uh, Helix Nanotechnology. Can you tell us about what it is about and what's the project? I mean, you're a fellow uh, Singularity University alumni like me, and I'm curious to find out more about your project. Okay, so I, I mean, we're we're obviously at a at a very early stage and and somewhat stealthy about what we do. So I'll I'll, I'll be a little bit cryptic on uh, <laughs> on what it's actually about. But but I think um, uh, uh, at a high level, uh, you could say that uh, we're trying to work on um, uh, a system that you could call a sort of like a black box or a flight recorder for a living cell. So some a system that you can put inside a cell that monitors what is happening inside uh, and writes information about what's going on onto a synthetic DNA tape. So, so sort of molecular tape recorder, uh, if you like. Um, and, and the reason why this is interesting is that um, measuring what goes on inside biological systems at that kind of single cell level is currently extremely hard and extremely expensive. And um, actually, even, even sort of the, the modern sort of uh, systems that quantify the presence of RNA molecules or, or, or DNA sequencing and so on, they, they really take snapshots, frozen snapshots of um, what the system looks like at a particular point in time. 
but uh, as we as we know, biological systems are, are very complex and dynamic and constantly evolving and interacting. So so we're trying to create a better way to to essentially uh, capture what happens over time. Uh, so hence hence the kind of recorder recorder approach where you use DNA to store information about uh, multiple time point time points that can be read all at once. So going going backwards in time. Perhaps you can be a little less cryptic about your previous company, uh, where uh, it was a mathematics company, right? That's right. So, so it really started uh, together with I started together with um, uh, Sam Halliday, who, who uh, also did his PhD in string theory uh, at, uh, uh, in Edinburgh, and uh, it was really Sam's idea, I would say. So, so we we both uh, towards the end of our PhD started to get a little bit disillusioned about uh, the academic world or, or, or sort of we started to have some doubts whether we wanted to spend our lives doing string theory and, and working on things where, where maybe 10 other people in the world understood and cared about and, uh, and we, we, we discovered that we both shared some heroes like people like uh, John von Neumann and Alan Turing who although very purely mathematically trained had, uh, had sort of applied their skills in solving some very important real life problems uh, very successfully. So, uh, so we, we tried out, uh, sort of, we, we, we threw, threw um, an academic conference we went to, we came into contact with Motorola and uh, uh, did a piece of work for them uh, on sort of mobile network frequency allocation. And uh, so that was a very successful project and it sort of convinced us that, um, that there, there could be an actual business uh, in in mathematical problem solving, and uh, it was the kind of job we we wanted, which didn't seem to exist. So so we decided to create it, and um, so so then essentially we uh, we did sort of uh, the the initial hard slog of trying to find some initial clients. We uh, we had um, we also had a stroke of luck in that um, uh, well, we uh, our team was sort of joined by a very experienced business person who became our CEO, who had a lot of uh, sales experience and business leadership experience. So that was very helpful, and um, and we we then got some traction in various domains, sort of from uh, as I mentioned, from sort of the space sector to to the oil and gas sector to some work also for the UK uh, Ministry of Defence uh, on on some uh, sort of DARPA style research projects, you you could say. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you about that a little bit here because. Of course, uh, Alan Turing is a hero of mine too, uh, and he's perhaps, uh, uh, well, he's known for a number of things, but one of the things for sure is uh, his uh, sort of breaking of the German Enigma codes uh, for the U-boats during World War II. Um, and I think one of his colleagues uh, said that uh, uh, John von, uh, I mean, that Alan Turing, uh, without what did he say? He said something in the sense that uh, we didn't win the war because of Alan, but without him, we might have lost it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, something, uh... something in in that sense. So, uh, but going to code breaking, and you've mentioned DARPA and the UK Ministry of Defense. Recently, there have been a huge uh, backlash in the math community against uh, doing work uh, for the NSA, for the UK Ministry of Defense. I mean, you can give like sort of fictional examples such as uh, the movie The Goodwill Hunting, or you can actually give some real life examples of very well known mathematicians who actually went out on the public record to call for other mathematicians to refuse 
to work and do uh, co contract work for the NSA and other such institutions. How do you feel about that? Um, so I, I can certainly understand uh, these people's position. I, I should elaborate on, on sort of the uh, connection that my previous company had to UK, UK MOD in the sense that we, we never really uh, did much work on, on cryptography, uh, in fact. So, so, so the UK institution that corresponds to NSA is uh, GCHQ, and we, we never really had, had much uh, association with them. Uh, and the projects we worked on were, were actually much more, they were, they were essentially fundamental research projects that the, that the Ministry of Defence was funding in the interests of sort of building some national capability in areas like um, artificial intelligence and uh, and quantum computing. So so the, the sort of it wasn't really a question of breaking codes or or, or uh, even even sort of uh, creating operational systems, but really really uh, quite fundamental research. Uh, now uh, now uh, I think your the the logic question of um, uh, the, the sort of engagement of mathematicians and uh, uh, and the intelligence community is very interesting. I mean, uh, and, and uh, as you say, that connection goes way back. It certainly it certainly goes back to to the beginning of uh, the beginning of the twentieth century and uh, the, the the sort of war efforts of Enigma and the, the sort of U.S. Park. U, U, U.S. Bletchley Park, the U.S. equivalent of that uh, magic, which was about breaking the Japanese codes, are are uh, interesting examples of that. Um, so, um, and I think the, the sort of mathematicians do have a tendency, perhaps. To, to become very enamored by difficult problems and uh, uh, especially especially pure pure mathematicians and and it's somewhat remarkable actually that that really modern foundations of modern crypto cryptography have ended up coming from from sort of rather obstruse difficult branches of, of pure mathematics I mean number theory and uh, and and uh, things like that uh, theory of finite fields um, so so I can kind of uh, understand the fascination that that this might create for for uh, a lot of mathematicians that uh, there's there's this lure that my my work could actually be be so meaningful on on, on such a large scale uh, but um, now I think uh, perhaps uh, people the, the, perhaps mathematicians are starting to to realize with these revelations what the big impact really has been and I think uh, even though uh, those of us who, who have, a, have an interest in technology and uh, and uh, history of uh, history of intelligence operations, uh, I'm sure have uh, long surmised that there there must be large scale uh, information gathering going on. But I think uh, even even in spite of that, I think uh, even people in the know were somewhat surprised by the by this enormous scale. Of, of the revelation, so so I think this is really one of the the great questions of our age, on, on how we how how we're going to to deal with the fact that uh, modern technology simply gives sort of centralized organizations enormous leverage in terms of uh, gathering gathering information, and and uh, and I think I mean I certainly find even and not necessarily even just. Uh, the context of um, government intelligence agencies, but also also companies and, and sort of private organizations who uh, who also hold vast stores of uh, of personal data. Yeah, and, and of course the UK capabilities would probably be second best only to the NSA itself, uh, and naturally Canada would be somewhere third or fourth. Uh, but let me ask you about this then. So that I mean, we we know that any knowledge, any math or science could be used for both good and evil. So that's why 
I believe ethics comes to 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 play such an important role. Would you mind saying a little bit of, about ethics and whether or how you think it's important in making those decisions? Um, well, I think yeah, I, I because think mathematicians uh... often tend to ignore, I think, ethics or sort of, as you mentioned, they get enamored or really sucked into that very tough mathematical problem, and then they kind of fail to to look at you know, the picture down the road or how it can be utilized later on. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, that's right. So, so the, uh, and I think maybe mathematicians now are particularly prone to that problem given, given that most of, most of pure mathematics is, is kind of far removed from reality. Now, I think the, the question of ethics and science is, is becoming uh, incredibly uh, important. And I, and I think the, the sort of, um, uh, one of my favorite books is um, The Making of the Atomic Bomb by, by Richard Rhodes, which, which sort of chronicles how uh, people, including uh, sort of Leo Szilard, uh, who, who kind of originated a lot of the key concepts like chain reaction, struggled uh, with these issues. Uh, and and uh, so, so I think maybe, maybe the, the, there needs to be some, there should be uh, even more kind of uh, directed efforts to, to create that debate and actually make scientists alongside their work aware of these questions. So, so I think actually some, something that, that may be related to is that um, uh, in many countries uh, there is this issue of two cultures, scientists kind of neglecting humanities and, and vice versa. Uh, so maybe introducing a bit of bit of ethics and uh, and uh, philosophy into into the science curriculum to to actually force people to to think about these questions might be quite relevant. Another 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 point, of course, is that uh, that that one of the things that science fiction tries to do is, to some extent, to to uh, imagine some scenarios where where um, scientific advances change. Uh, sort of the human experience in society in very very fundamental ways. It may it may not. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, providing answers to to what should be done, but at least highlighting highlighting the sort of enormity of the changes that might result. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to the science fiction part of it, but but uh, let me let me ask you this then, because it's a little bit relevant here. I think how is it and why you you mentioned that you got a little disillusioned with academia. How is it, and and why did this happen? What was sort of the the sort of uh, awareness that built within you after spending five years of your life doing a PhD or so on? Well, I mean, I enjoyed my my PhD D a lot. I mean, I had had a lot of freedom to to do my research and come up with new ideas, and I had a, a very good mentor in my supervisor. But then, 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 when I sort of started to think about the how the academic path would uh, unfold further on, uh, it was clear that, um, especially in a field like string theory, the competition for postdoc positions was just enormously difficult. I mean, uh, many of my peers, even some of the very talented ones, uh, would send out uh, 30, 40 applications for a postdoc position and maybe get one interview out of that. And, and, uh, and then, then, of course, uh, projecting further, uh, you, you would essentially uh, have to work uh, extremely hard to, to produce essentially a little small push into this uh, unknown, uh, uh, which, of course, is is valuable and, and, uh, and needs to be done. Uh, but, uh, in, in sort of contrast of trying to maybe do something more applied or widely relevant to the real world, uh, it didn't suddenly seem so attractive. And I think another, another uh, point was that both Sam and I started really have 
have some uh, uh, doubts with string theory as a, as a subject um, in terms of um, being slightly concerned that perhaps uh, uh, it it, it sort of didn't fulfill the promises uh, it, it uh, uh, had had made, uh, sort of about ten, fifteen years earlier, as a, as as the the great theory of everything. Uh, and I think there is a sort of a spreading concern in the physics community now, now more widely on, along those lines that uh, that string theory has kind of lost all contact with uh, experiment, uh, and it's it's really become this very complex abstract mathematical theory that that is not really able to make significant experimental predictions at least uh, at this point uh, yet it is also uh, attracting quite a lot, big chunk of the theoretical physics or mathematical physics funding uh, whereas they might be might be other directions that uh, should be explored as well is that connected in any way with the Higgs boson discovery and uh, CERN and the exact measurement of uh, of its value I mean that's that's a slightly different story. So so I guess uh, uh, the the sort of what what the Higgs and the the LHC work relate to much more are, are, is uh, the standard model, which uh, is sort of the um, unifying framework of uh, the fundamental interactions of nature, which without including gravity. I mean that's uh, that's sort of so so the um, a very very and it's the standard model is a very 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 uh, beautiful theory that elegantly sort of combines. Uh, our understanding about electromagnetism and the weak and strong nuclear forces, and and kind of the missing element there uh, was the Higgs, which which now now appears to have been uh, confirmed um, uh, at sort of roughly speaking the right right uh, mass uh, as well. So so string theory, uh, on the other hand, tries to go beyond the standard model. So it tries to bring gravity into the same quantum mechanical framework, the sort of fundamental question there being that um, the techniques that, are, that were used to kind of uh, understand uh, the other fundamental forces and to create sort of quantum theories of electromagnetism and the nuclear forces don't seem to work with gravity. Gravity seems to be uh, a different beast somehow to, to the, uh, compared to the other forces. And uh, the sort of great challenge of... Uh, creating a quantum theory of gravity is what uh, both string theory and other approaches like loop quantum gravity has have been struggling with for the last last couple few few decades so um, so the problem there is that um, the energy scales required to probe quantum gravity and uh, phenomena are are so vast that they they may not be within the reach of LHC or or indeed of any conceivable <laughs> particle accelerator that we could ever build. Uh, there might be some some uh, ways that we could uh, use cosmological observations also to, to constrain some of these uh, these models uh, models of physics but um, uh, it's uh, it's not entirely clear yet how to how to do that. Um, One of the implications uh, pertaining somewhat to your work was that the way I understand it, um, the value measured of the Higgs boson was very important. And I think if I remember, if it was in the 140 MeV range, uh, it would have meant uh, more of a multiverse uh, implications. Uh, it would kind of be a confirmation of the, of the multiverse uh, hypothesis. And if it was under 120 or 115, uh, it would have been a denial of it. But it can it kind of came up like somewhere exactly in between. 
at, at 125 to 126, somewhere like between 125 and 126 MEV. And, and I don't, uh, I don't know, because you do speak about the multiverse in, in your books. Uh, I mean, do those discoveries and those measurements and those experimental tests have an impact on your writing? Um, well, I, I think um, not, not perhaps directly. I mean, in, in, in terms of, um, I, I don't think anything I've, I've written has, has changed as a result of LHC discoveries. But uh, I think the, the, when, when we use the word multiverse, uh, we kind of have to be careful on which multiverse we mean. I mean, there, there, are, there are actually many possible ways of, of uh, thinking about uh, the possibility of other, other universes as well. So, so the sort of, we have... Um, in, in quantum mechanics, we have the many worlds in, in, interpretation, the idea that whenever a physical process happens, uh, all the possible branches of the wave function, all the possible ways in which uh, an outcome could occur actually occur, uh, sort of this, this idea of uh, uh, go, going back to, to um, the 1950s, creating so, so that we would have this infinitely branching uh, multiversal tree. So that's that's one meaning of the word multiverse. I think what you're referring to uh, is probably more related to this sort of cosmological multiverse, where where um, sort of there, there are um, models, uh, for example, originated by Russian cosmologist Andrei Linde, like uh, called eternal inflation, where where sort of our universe is just sort of this locally expanding region of a mass, much vaster uh, space. Uh, and uh, it could be that um, the, the sort of the constants, the kinds of constants like, like the mass of the Higgs are, are different in, in different parts of that, those, and totally that, that region. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that, that relates to um, the idea of the anthropic principle, which is, uh, which is that, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where, where um, the sort of we, we wonder uh, we can look around and wonder sort of how fine-tuned the universe seems to be uh, in terms of many of the physical constants like possibly the mass of the Higgs but also others like um, the so-called fine structure constant uh, uh, if it was even a little bit different we wouldn't have stars or life or anything anything else interesting but it seems to be just just right so uh, so the anthropic interpretation of these observations is that actually there are other regions uh, in this sort of cosmological inf inflatory multiverse where there are different values for these constants and therefore there is no life to, to open, open its eyes and look around and be surprised uh, by the fine-tuning. So, um, yeah, that there, there is that. I, I guess that there are, just to kind of conclude the tour of the multiverses, I mean, there are, there are also uh, other uh, notions in that, that have come... Um, uh, out of string theory uh, in the sort of cosmological context, so-called brain world scenarios where, where there, there are uh, sort of not only other regions of the multiverse, but actually actually sort of other dimensions um, sort of orthogonal to ours where, where, um, um, we, where, <coughs> excuse me, where uh, universes are actually like these stacked sheets uh, separated uh, in, in this sort of additional dimensional um, extensions that we cannot access. But, um, which could also have separate laws of physics on the, on, on their uh, on, on each each membrane or brain. Mm -hmm. let, let, I think I'm slowly creeping out of my depth here. So let me let me get a little more closer to to a few subjects that I'm more familiar with myself. So let me ask you to move our conversation to science fiction. What is science fiction in your view? What is your definition of science fiction? 
I think my definition of science fiction is um, uh, sort of relates to the application of the scientific method in some way. So uh, quite quite often you, you, I mean, this is one of those questions that science fiction fans argue, have infinite arguments about. Um, but quite often you sort of hear that uh, science fiction is uh, things that consists of things that do not exist but could exist or things that uh, haven't happened but could happen and fantasy uh, extends into things which are really impossible as as we know it's uh, based on known science but um i'm not actually sure i agree with that definition so so i i, can you, I prefer... sorry can you repeat that by any chance just to be clear yes so um a traditional definition that you hear quite often is that in science fiction things happen which uh may be very strange uh but which in principle could happen uh at least uh sort of based on our uh, current knowledge of, of uh, how the universe works. And fantasy extends to the impossible. So, so in fantasy, you can have things like magic, which sort of totally are at odds with our understanding of the universe. Um, but um, I, I kind of disagree with that definition uh, a little bit. I mean, uh, I, I find that distinction somewhat artificial. Uh, and I think my definition of science fiction has much more to do with uh, a kind of uh, the, the scientific method or or you could say the science fictional method where you try to create fictional worlds that are self-consistent. So sort of treating the story uh, as a kind of thought experiment where you uh, t make some assumptions and try to work out their consequences within the context of that, that fictional world that you're creating and, and try to be while 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 trying to be sort of logical and and somewhat somewhat rigorous uh depending on what you're trying to achieve so so in that uh sense uh i am I'm, I'm perfectly happy with starting sort of seemingly impossible starting points uh as well i mean you usually even in actually in even in what is known as traditional science fiction you the, the sort of at least the writer's heuristic is that you are usually allowed one impossible thing so, so it could be faster than light travel or, or time travel or, or, or something like that. That kind of preempts uh, one of the uh, audience questions that I received uh, by Callum Chase, who was asking whether you are a fantasy or a sci-fi author or, or if it does really even make any sense to make that distinction. And I think you mostly answered it. Mm. No, I mean that's that's right. I mean, I I don't think it. Uh, I don't think the distinction makes sense. I mean, I've written kind of uh, stories which are to closer to to both ends of the spectrum. I have written pure fantasy stories based on Finnish mythology, and I have written more more sort of hard, hard science fiction style stories. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it it all comes down to what story one wants to tell and what is what is the palette that it needs to be painted into to make it most uh, effective. Hmm. Well, I have to share with you that I myself do actually very much abide by that distinction uh, and, and I'm a fan of the what some people may call more of the hard sci-fi uh, writers and and generally almost never read or and or enjoy the so-called fantasy uh, writers and and I mean I absolutely love your book and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later uh, your trilogy but if there were any parts that I had to struggle with, to sort of suspend disbelief and kind of get it as it were, to, to be able to dive into the, the plot was those elements of, of fantasy that I personally had to really struggle with and 
yeah. Um, but let me ask you, how did you get interested in writing in general and writing science fiction in particular? Let's let's embrace your definition for the purposes of our <laughs> conversation and assume there's no such distinction. But how did you get interested in writing and why sci-fi in particular? So um, I guess uh, to, to answer the second uh, question first, I, I think uh, uh, the sort of fondness of science fiction really came, came from... Uh, starting with uh, Jules Verne when I was uh, sort of uh, around six or seven years old and then then sort of proceeding to to read H.G. Uh, Wells and then then all, all the sort of uh, classic science fiction authors whatever I could find in the local library in my in my hometown so so I think uh, I, I think in, in some sense uh, whenever we uh, uh, try to uh, express ourselves and, and try to reach for some sort of sense of wonder we we do do end up going back to to childhood and childhood influences, um, to uh, that that's something I think we all want to fundamentally recapture. Um, on on how how I started writing, um, the the story behind that is that originally, uh, I, I was very much into tabletop role playing games. So so when I was uh, growing up in my hometown as a teenager, I had a group of friends uh, who who like myself were really into. Uh, not only Dungeons and Dragons, but sort of many uh, many other uh, types types of games uh, that usually usually ended up having uh, a strong storytelling element. And I, I, I usually uh, had the role of a game master who, who was kind of the world builder and, and uh, facilitator of of the story. So so that that, that was all all very useful useful uh, stuff uh, regarding regarding writing as well. But that was kind of my my main. Uh, form of creative expression when I was growing up and then when I came to the UK I sort of lost uh, touch with 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 my groups uh, or, or friends in in Finland uh, and uh, was looking for something to to fill that that void in in, in some way and I, I tried other things as well I tried to I tried amateur theater I, I, I spent a bit of time at the uh, Bedlam theater which is the Edinburgh University student theater my uh, I think my best role was uh, playing the re lead role in a play called Roberto Zucco where I played a French psychopath serial killer <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is uh, which is a lot of, lot of fun, but um, then then I actually ended up going to uh, a reading uh, by a local writers group, a spoken word group, which happened to include uh, Charlie Stross, uh, whom uh, whose sort of short story Lobsters I had, had read previously and I really wanted to to hear him live, and uh, and uh, sort of turned out that um, actually the, the the performance of the group was excellent, not just uh, only only by Charlie but the other other members as well. So so I sort of sought out the. Uh, uh, sort of host uh, of, of the group, uh, Gavin Ingalls, and uh, asked uh, if, if uh, what, what the group's activities were and if they were uh, ever taking any new members. And it turned out that the group had these uh, monthly critique sessions where they also uh, um, looked at each other's work and, and gave each other feedback. So so uh, I ended up going along to one of those things and submitting a story and uh, and joining the group and have have been a member of the group uh, ever since. So so uh, over ten years. Uh, now and uh, and I think that was kind of where where I learned everything I know about writing. Yeah, and I have to say, Charlie Strauss is one of my favorite uh, science fiction writers too. Um, and actually, uh, I started this blog after reading Ray Kurzweil's *The Singularity Is Near* and Charlie Strauss's *Accelerando*. Mm -hmm. And, and Very good. having read those two books, I was like so blown away that that uh, I decided to start this blog and. 
couple of years later, I actually had the pleasure of interviewing Charlie on this podcast. And I was amazed that the person who wrote Accelerando was a total singularity skeptic. Yes, yes, he is. And I, I found that so fascinating. Uh, but it was it was one of my favorite interviews. Uh, let me get back to you, though. Uh, so can you perhaps tell us what is sort of the motivation or the ultimate goal of your work, other than having fun and sort of re uh, sort of uh, live those experiences that you mentioned uh playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons with your friends and sort of having that kind of experience? Well, uh, I, I think in terms of writing, it does become uh, much more about um, uh, exploration and uh, trying, to, uh, trying, trying, to, trying to answer, trying to, well, not, not, not necessarily even answer, but try to, try to ask uh, difficult and grand questions. And, and I, that, that sort of... Uh, relate very much to, to the questions that I'm fundamentally interested in. I, I think in, in the case of the, the Quantum Thief trilogy, those questions revolved around uh, identity and, and memory and, and consciousness and, uh, and, and things like that. That, that, that sort of what defines us and uh, do, we, do we have ultimately free will? Uh, can, we, can we fundamentally change if, if we are dissatisfied with, with who we are and, uh, and, and things like that? Um, and... Um, yeah, so 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 I think those those are, uh, I think the questions change with with each each work, but uh, but certainly certainly those would would be the ones related to the quantum thief books. There's not an overarching theme because that kind of also relates to the definition of science fiction that each science fiction author has. You know, I've interviewed probably ten of the best known science fiction authors of the world, and it's amazing to me that everybody has a completely different interpretation of it. <laughs> Um, one thing that's in common most of the time, with some notable exceptions, is that, as Cory Doctorow put it, science fiction is not about the future. No. It's about the present. Uh, and that notable exception may be Werner Vinge, uh, who said that in his understanding or in his sort of embracing of science fiction, it was like a mechanism through which he tries to make sense of the universe. And in that process, if he shares his ideas with other people and they thought that it makes sense, then that was great. Uh, Charlie Strauss, for example, said that science fiction was about exploring the human condition under what he called was uh, coming up with uh, plausible lies uh, about, about how human behavior would work under some kind of crazy, extreme, imaginary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and, and so is there nothing overarching? Or I mean, you're maybe too young of an author to ask such a grand question about no, no. I think it, I think it is is quite a it is a very good question. I, I think uh, these kinds of uh, big uh, overarching answers do probably emerge more easily uh, looking looking back at a back at a larger body of work than I have. But but one but actually one thing comes to mind. I, I was sort of um, uh, I gave a talk recently at FinCon uh, in in Finland, and um, at one of the, and and actually one of the uh, ideas that came to me uh, while while preparing for that talk was the kind of analog between fiction and science fiction in particular and spacesuits. So you could think of science fiction as a as a 
kind of a spacesuit that allows you to explore strange and strange and uh, sort of bizarre environments. And uh, one one incredible power that fiction has, and, and this I think relates to my, my background as in with role playing games, is that it, it is the unique medium where you really get inside somebody's head, where it's not just about um, sort of looking at pe- people from afar, listening to people's conversations, but it's really experiencing the inner narrative of, of the characters that you interact. So, so, it's, so you actually see the world through their eyes. So, so you, you get to be in these, these uh, uh, whether they are sort of worlds of the future or, or, or some other, other strange uh, or, and fantastical uh, settings. So it is like you wear their skin. You, you put them on like a suit and, and, you, and you, you enter the... Uh, enter a different world, where, where which which allows you to see um, things from from a different perspective. But also, but also in that universe, you take the sort of the the role of God. Well, I mean, uh, I, I think not. I mean, yes, you could uh, you you could think of it that way. I mean, author, of course, the, the author uh, authorial role. Um, is that of a creator? I guess Tolkien even even talked about sub-creation, and he kind of kind of viewed uh, world building as as kind of imitation of God's work as as a kind of uh, highest form. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, uh, when I write, I, I, I do try to do is very much from the point of view of, of the characters, and therefore the sort of unexpected things happen when you when you look at the world through through their eyes. I had an uh, interesting conversation actually with. Stephen Baxter, who um, I don't know if you interviewed him, but uh, but also but sort of uh, uh, who has an extremely rigorous approach to um, scientific world building, and um, I think in one of his one of the novels that um, uh, he wrote, I think it's Raft, possibly there is a life form that evolves on the surface of a neutron star. So he did months and months of research on on this on this uh, on neutron stars and and uh, came up with all kinds of plausible uh, sort of nuclear chemistries that could allow uh, these life forms to exist and, and, and so on. But, but then he said that uh, nothing, none of that research was as useful as sitting down and writing the first scene where the main character opens her eyes and looks around. So that's kind of the point where he, uh, he entered that, that world, world himself. So, so, you kind of, so you kind of wear this suit even, even as, as the author. You, you kind of have to explore it also from the point of view of the characters. I, I guess that there is then the mode where you step away from, from the writing process and you do this more godlike planning and, 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 uh, and try, to, try to lay out uh, the path for the characters. But quite frequently, of course, they, they disobey and go their, their own way uh, as well. Uh, and, and your mind definitely fills in details that you could not, could not have thought of in this sort of God, God mode, let's say, uh, um, as, as you start writing. Those are very interesting insights into writing fiction that you're giving us here. So let me try and bring it to your other previous work uh, in math and ask you, what are the similarities and the differences between writing science fiction and problem-solving a math uh, uh, question or... Uh, how is math helping you do science fiction, or has it, or is it? Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's definitely similarities. So, so I think um, one uh, interesting thing uh, about mathematics is that it's it's sort of a it's a sort of an art of constraints. 
So, so it's an art of imposing interesting constraints. You sort of, uh, uh, you're kind of uh, in mathematics. You you study formal systems that are defined by a set of axioms, and then you then you try to derive theorems from from those axioms, and kind of deciding what axioms you're choosing and what what you're what you're excluding, uh, and what kinds of what kind of how do you limit the class of objects you're studying is is uh, is very important and. Uh, and you, the, the sort of trick is to find, try to find interesting constraints that that uh, actually make it uh, give give you sort of a handle handle on, uh, on 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 this sort of space of possible objects. And in the same way, I, I think in in science fiction, you you sort of try to try to constrain yourself in some way. You may you make a change in the world, but you, it has to be an interesting change. And then then you also also try to. Uh, figure out how to constrain yourself. So, do you do you remain within sort of the confines of known science, or or what do you do? I mean, I think one example, one concrete example in the first Quantum Thief book was um, uh, was sort of essentially uh, realizing that uh, in order to write a detective story set in this uh, fairly post-human future, there had to be some constra- constraints uh, that uh, needed to be introduced. Uh, now, first constraint I actually imposed was um, because I wanted to have some sort of human, uh, relatable story in in the the sort of human sense uh, and sense of characterization. Uh, so I chose not to have uh, a significant element of sort of strong AI in the story in, in the in the universe of the world at all of the, of the books at all. So um, one constraint was that um, uploading happens before there is any strong AI, and strong AI tends to be an extremely difficult problem and therefore um, it just becomes easier and more more efficient to just sort of use repurposed human minds for for uh, for every conceivable uh, uh, kind of software based solution so that that's that's one thing yes yes I, I, I'm planning to bring up that that uh, very important constraint uh, later on in our conversation but what you said previously about uh, math and working with constraints kind of reminds me to a quote that I uh, saw in one of your previous interviews, where you says, where you say creativity requires frustration and suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Well, I think uh, this is sort of actually uh, also a um, um, process that uh, is is dis- described uh, very well in uh, a book. Um, Called uh, the mathematician's mind. Uh, I think I think there's a extended, which is a sort of a selection of um, uh, essays from mathematicians who who describe how they work. Where where Poincaré, for example, uh, describes that 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 he would just uh, essentially get to a point where he could make make no progress at all with the problem, where he would then have to essentially force himself to to. Look away from it and and have this period when 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 he wasn't necessarily consciously thinking about the problem at all, uh, and and then all of a sudden a, a sort of random uh, event or or uh, would would spark some new realization that would seemingly come out of nowhere, and I think uh, what I found is that it's at least for me in terms of writing quite often I end up with some sort of plot or character related problem that I think about. For a long, long time, and I and I and I have this feeling of totally getting stuck, and then it's it's sort of the uh, the challenge is how to endure that feeling long enough for the, the sort of spark to to come from somewhere, uh, and I've now kind of started to to feel fairly confident that it usually comes in in some form, but uh, 
sort of so so it's it's all about developing the patience to to wait for it and allow it to happen and you have to build a lot of pressure to build that dam of creativity to, absolutely to, no, to no. break through it's... the dam of creativity before you know you're able to get there yeah, yeah, of course, you still need to, to have that uh, uh, effort needed to, to kind of uh, end up pushing against the dam and, and then have the pressure build up, as, as you say. But, uh, but yeah, then, then usually, usually the sort of, uh, it is a very um, singular event or a very, very sort of rapid, uh, rapid event when, when it does uh, break. Hanno, your signing of a contract uh, with a major publishing company is a bit of a, the subject of a legend. Uh, <laughs> Would you mind sharing with us how is it that it happened? I mean, the story goes that you basically had 20-some double-spaced pages and you pretty much sold the trilogy. That's, that, is, that is true. There is actually a version that, that claims that it was the first sentence, but that's not, that's not quite true. So, <laughs> so, um, so uh, what happened was that um, around uh, 2007, uh, I was signed on by by John Jarold, uh, sort of famous literary agent uh, in in the UK, who who uh, has uh, who who already started his career as a as an editor, including uh, and who's sort of um, uh, authors in his, who worked with him included Ian Banks and and uh, many other famous uh, authors. Uh, so so John John sort of started gently suggesting that that I should write a novel, and um, and at that that point I'd already had. Um, Attempts uh, uh, to at novel writing, so I had a sort of a two-thirds finished manuscript, uh, which uh, I'd been working on and off for several years, and, and then then I sort of made this concerted effort to to actually finish it, and um, it didn't really go anywhere. I kind of uh, it, I started to feel that that story had uh, some fundamental issues that I that I couldn't resolve, and uh, so eventually I sort of just put it aside and, and started thinking if I had any other ideas. And I had sort of recently read um, Robert Axelrod's book, The Evolution of Corporation. And, uh, and, and then I had this kind of uh, uh, flash uh, about uh, uh, a, a dilemma prison, a kind of, kind of uh, simulated prison in t- using prisoners' dilemma to, to sort of evolve prisoners to altruistic corporators. And, uh, and, and so I started thinking about, okay, what sort of prisoners would, would be there and, and, uh, and so on. And I kind of uh, wrote uh, a chapter that, that became the first chapter of The Quantum Thief. And, uh, and I thought it was, I was quite... Uh, Satisfied with it, so I sent it to John just to 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 ask his his view on whether the, it was worth worth pursuing further. And um, uh, and he happened to have a meeting on the same day with uh, Simon Spanton, an editor at Galance. And so he asked me, um, can could he could he show it to Simon? And I said, of course, yes. Uh, but uh, my expectation was that Simon might say, well, this is kind of interesting. Let's see the whole thing, or, or maybe he wouldn't like it at all, or or something like that. But instead, uh, he uh, he sort of went out on a limb and. Offered us a, a three-book contract based on that, so uh, that was <laughs> that was quite a shock. That's that's absolutely fascinating. So, uh, and <laughs> this kind of leads me to another uh, audience question by Cynthia Stewart, who is asking: Do you have any advice for na- nascent sci-fi novelists? Uh, what would that be? People who are trying to break through. To, to break through uh, to the science fiction publishing industry now or or in any in any realm for for you know for novel sci-fi writers whether trying to break through in the publishing industry or generally on, about writing anything you want to 
do you think it would make the biggest difference for them? Right, right. Uh, I, I think one one thing uh, that that sort of uh, I, I like to you mention is that uh, it is worth to to try to write some short stories uh, because short stories are easier to finish than novels, and and uh, and they are also a good way to attract some some attention and and uh, establish establish yourself as a writer. And uh, and it's it's good. It's very good practice. Uh, as well, uh, I guess the other the other the other piece of uh, advice uh, would be to to try to read as widely as possible. So not just not just science fiction, but also very widely outside science fiction, because usually the novel things in science fiction come by taking elements uh, also also from from outside. And I think uh, one one key thing in in as I uh, as I said earlier is is sort of trying to find. Uh, new ways of of exploring these these alien alien worlds, and it may be that there already are in, in sort of somewhere in what you might call mainstream literature or other other genres. There might be points of view that are actually a very good good way of uh, approaching that. So so that's uh, something to do as well. So read widely and write short stories. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, uh, you two. can sum, you can summarize that. Yeah, fantastic, uh, Hanu. Many people struggle with that sort of publishing breakthrough. I mean, for them, it's kind of easier to write a book. But what was the biggest challenge for you on the road to ending up with a trilogy? Um, I think actually, uh, in terms of the the process itself, it was figuring out what goes into a novel. So, so I think the the immediately after after uh, getting the contract, uh, I had a major crisis uh, in terms of actually. Uh, uh, sort of go, going forward, I guess. I guess I, there was pressure and expectations, and uh, uh, the bar bar seemed very high. So I actually had a proper writer's block for for a period of time. Uh, I, I tried to come up with uh, this massive outline that had pretty much every idea I had ever had <laughs> uh, on uh, the, the, to 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 fit into even that that first first book, and that just sort of uh, turned out to be too much. And uh, it sort of took then. Uh, Quite a bit of time, and actually, uh, the help of uh, a friend from uh, the writers' group to kind of unravel that that uh, issue and, and to figure out what is the natural length of a novel, what sort of story do you tell in a novel, and uh, uh, going through that exercise actually helped to to me to realize that then that outline was the outline for the for the three books and not just not just one book. So that was that was certainly a challenge in terms of uh, the the writing process. Um, in terms of in terms of other challenges, I, I, yeah, uh, the I, I think the I think the the sort of the, the initial get, getting getting the first story published, I think, is also a challenge. Like like to get to the point where the, there is a long road uh, even between starting writing and uh, and getting a first story published. I mean, that's that's why I again emphasize the short stories because they are they they allow you to do that process a little bit faster. So. Uh, Hanno, we've been talking for a while here, and I think it's way overdue to actually jump and start uh, discussing the meat of the matter here, which is, of course, your book. Um, let me start by saying that I really enjoyed your book uh, progressively. I, I got hooked on part one. Part two was somehow a lot harder for me to follow uh, and or uh, really sort of suspend disbelief in. And then part three totally blew my mind, and and, and, <laughs> and I was amazed. Like part three and how you pulled everything together, it totally blew my mind, and I, I I was absolutely flabbergasted. So I I was 
kind of shocked and awed and, and mesmerized and amazed and, and absolutely loved part three. But let me start by saying it seems that me and you have been inspired by the same writers, uh, Jules Verne, uh, Maurice LeBlanc, uh, who of course uh, created the character of the gentleman thief, Arsène Lupin, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, Arabian Nights. So it, it seemed to me you kind of took elements from all my favorite books <laughs> and wrote this sci-fi novel, which probably is one sort of insight as to why I loved it so much. Great. But tell us, what is The Quantum Thief about? Um, yeah, I think The Quantum Thief is about uh, the main character's sort of struggle to, to figure out who he is uh, or, or, or it sort of at a... It's sort of the, the the kind of core question there was uh, this sort of possibility of of change. Can we? Are we? Um, if 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 we don't like ourselves, can we be better? Ultimately, um, uh, or or are we completely trapped by our our past and and the choices we've made, uh, or or the identities that we we'll, we built for ourselves? And and that's yeah, that's that's pretty much what it's about. Yeah, and it kind of it sort of reminded me very much to this path that martial artists undertake called the do the way and and it's also reminded me to to the quote a very well known quote by bruce lee who said all knowledge is ultimately self knowledge mm -hmm. so so your character sort of starts in in this first book by not remembering much but by missing pretty much most of his memory and then trying to slowly build up bits and pieces and sort of rediscover who he is and what he did together with everybody mm. else. Mm. And whether, as you put it, whether he can change the sort of the momentum of the past and take new actions and, and create a new identity for himself, which is why I thought it's, it's so fascinating myself and I absolutely enjoyed it. So, uh, Tell us a little bit about the, the main characters and how you came up with them. So you have this person on this quest of self-knowledge. So do you look then for characters who can sort of help him on this way or challenge him or? Yeah, so, so obviously, obviously you need, need the sort of, uh, uh, the, now, now something, something um, that uh, is worth saying about Jean Le Flambeur, the main character is is that he is, of course, also a sort of classic trickster figure, uh, and uh, so a trickster also needs needs sort of a straight man uh, uh, counterpoint, and and therefore therefore we have Mieli who who uh, is also uh, sort of. Uh, Who's much more serious? Who is a bit of an outsider in 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 most of the worlds that are that are visited uh, during the course of the books? Uh, who um, has this sort of very singular drive uh, uh, towards towards her goal, which is to to sort of reunite with her 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 lover uh, in the and and who 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 is very much willing to. Uh, do anything to reach that goal, uh, even if it means serving sort of the, the needs of of uh, the Pellegrini, who's this uh, sort of uh, post-human uh, goddess with with her own own goals and motivations. So so there there whereas 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 Jean, so she's very focused and driven, whereas whereas Jean is fluid and and kind of uh, adopts different different identities and 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 his motives aren't aren't so so clear. 
Um, so, so that that uh, contrast obviously uh, obviously is is very interesting. And then then you then you sort of uh, yeah, I, th I think I think it's. Uh, Sort of uh, creating characters is is an organic process. So you so so it's not necessarily uh, just about putting pieces and and points and, and counterpoints uh, on the table, but but sort of other other characters obviously emerge who who then embody the forces that uh, they uh, they have to overcome to achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. And then you have another kind of important character called Perhonen. Uh, which is basically a spaceship with a personality. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Uh, you have a spaceship which has a, a soul or a personality or a, or an identity of its own. So, so I guess Perhonen is is like um, sort of uh, all the other characters in in the story, uh, ultimately derived from a sort of human-like mind. But in this case, a a uh, human-like mind that that treats sort of the the spaceship as as her her body, effectively. So so it's it's who she really is. So so it's not she's not sort of this sort of disembodied mind uh, haunting a spaceship. She really is the spaceship in on on, on, on in some sense and. Uh, uh, which sort of sort of gives her a slightly different uh, point of view on things than than, than uh, what uh, Miguel and John have, uh, and uh, uh, so she is actually a little bit more uh, reflective and and sort of has maybe a higher level of self knowledge than than uh, John and Miguel do at least initially. Uh, so so she tends to to try to um, uh, tell them things things that they don't want to hear. I you know I I don't even know if that makes sense, but. Perkunen kind of reminded me to Marvin, uh, Douglas Adams' <laughs> Marvin. In, in, in some ways, I mean, she's a very, very different character, so I can't really, you know, put my finger on it, but kind of had maybe similar exchanges. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, of course, with this kind of a little bit interesting sense of humor, curious sense of humor, a, a spaceship with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think she's uh, she's maybe not quite as pessimistic as as Marvin. No, no, Martin, no, no. Sort of, but uh, um, yeah, I, th I think uh, that there's sort of uh, maybe there is uh, some tendency in science fiction to introduce sort of artificial characters or, or sort of either robotic or inhuman characters who who then serve as mirrors for the for the main characters and and uh, give, uh, the sort of a their alien nature gives them a little bit of distance and perspective on on what's what's going on so uh, maybe Perhonen does play uh, that role as well mm -hmm. and you said that you actually wrote the outline or you realized that you had the outline for all three books before you even finished the first one right which kind yes. of makes sense because to me it was absolutely flabbergasting reading the third book and pulling all the strings from all those different parts together and bringing it all in a like in a way that I totally did not foresee in any way uh, and totally amazed me so it was part of this kind of amazing effect that I really enjoyed in the end uh how important is outlining because i mean some people write with outlines and other people kind of follow the characters and wherever they take them Mm -hmm. I think you have to do well. I, mean, I think everybody is very different, and that re in that regard, I mean, there there are uh, certainly people like, for example, I don't know, Joe Hill, who just seems to sit down and and write uh, and and uh, see where the characters take him. But um, uh, for me, it's actually quite important. So so I I, I do have a, a, a kind of a 
long uh, process where where I just don't I, I I'm not really even actively writing. I'm just thinking about things and sort of uh, coming up with ideas and and uh, I, I tend to use uh, little sticky notes quite a lot. So so I I, I end up usually with uh, a wall in my office covered with sticky notes that 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 I then sort of. Uh, try to assemble into into sort of mind map like patterns, and and I do s- sort of a similar exercise uh, with each chapter before I before I, I write it. So so I come up with this. Uh, I, I sort of throw down uh, ideas for scenes, pieces of dialogue, pieces of description, and then I kind of cluster them into uh, in, into uh, clumps, and and then join them with arrows to see how it how it actually actually flow. So 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 I do it at sort of both uh, the macro level and and. Uh, Closer to the story itself, but uh, but I but I think that does kind of I do then tend to forget about it when I'm actually writing. So so when when the actual writing process starts, then it beca- becomes uh, more about following the characters. So so I've sort of set the some of these milestones that I want to reach, and but then it's kind of up to uh, working with the characters to find a way there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you use any like software program for writers or something like that? Uh, there's quite a few things I use. I mean, there's uh, something actually I've started using quite a lot recently is uh, called Scapple, which is this sort of uh, brainstorming uh, uh, piece of software, which is also uh, which is made by by the same same guy who created Scrivener, uh, which, which I, I do use quite a lot as well in the actual uh, actual writing process. Although uh, I write first drafts by hand. A true mathematician. <laughs> yes. So 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 it may have something to do with the fact that. Um, I have kind of I am very used to thinking with with uh, a pen in my hand, so it comes to me more naturally than than uh, uh, using a keyboard. But then then I type it up, and uh, as I type it up, I also usually edit it quite a lot. So so the initial handwritten draft is more like a sketch, so it's very rough, and then then it gets refined um, in the typing process. Let me let me bring in the topic here of determinism and free will. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, let me ask you this: Before writing the book, are you were you a determinist or not? <laughs> um, I think uh, okay. Again, we need to to slightly think about what what we mean mean by determinism. Now, now something. Um, uh, there's a great book by Daniel Dennett called Freedom Evolves, which is which is about the the question of free will. And uh, I think Dennett makes a great argument that if we that it doesn't matter that it, it sort of uh, that the the question of whether the universe at the sort of microscopic level is deterministic or random uh, ultimately does not uh, influence how how we would experience uh, our freedom or or, or lack of freedom. Uh, so I mean I think it seems to me. Uh, that uh, there is an essential element of randomness in, in quantum mechanics. So, so unless our understanding of quantum mechanics is completely wrong, then there is certainly a fairly strong element of randomness in, in the physical world. Uh, what's it there now? now um, Does random mean free? No, no, it doesn't. I don't think so. Uh, so, so there's, I think, this sort of, to to answer to think about the the question of freedom, we then need to to go up to the level of uh, human cognition and the human brain, and and there also the the question is not completely straightforward. I mean, uh, there's 
there, there is more and more evidence of, uh, from cognitive science that there are all, all kinds of behaviors that we have previously thought of as being voluntary, which, which, uh, which we actually cannot uh, consciously control, that, that, that we can actually make decisions before we are conscious of them at all. Uh, or uh, there can be brain injuries that, that really force uh, us to behave, behave in sometimes horrible ways. I mean, there are instances where brain tumors have caused people to, to carry out mass shootings or, or, or sort of become pedophiles or, or other horrible things like that. Um, but um, something that I, I, I sort of, I, I think my kind of main reason why, why, I, why I do do have some faith in, in some sort of personal notion of freedom is that, uh, uh, that the human brain is also extremely plastic. It's, it's, it's sort of, there's... Neuroplasticity. Exactly. That there, there, there's sort of uh, we do seem to have this enormous capacity for neuroplasticity, which which means that uh, if if we kind of uh, try to be, if we try to may, maybe sometimes using using sort of artificial tools uh, to to help us, uh, even in terms of just sort of writing down patterns of behavior that that we have, uh, and and sort of try to cultivate our awareness of them, we we can then actually uh, try to hack those those patterns and and. Uh, and create create new ones, and, and then of course, uh, what we what, there, there are examples of of just astonishing change uh, in terms of repurposing our our, our senses for uh, engaging with information in in different ways. Like I think there's this example of a mountain cli- blind mountain climber who who uh, has a set of electrodes on uh, sort of on his tongue, coupled to a camera that that he has actually taught taught himself. Uh, to use to see effectively, and and uh, and it sounds like he he does genuinely experience that that uh, input as as sight. So so if if our brains can be kind of re repurposed at such a fundamental level, then I think uh, there is some hope also for for our more uh, sort of everyday uh, sort of interpersonal behavioral aspects as well. Yeah, I think one of the students of Professor Kevin Warwick at the University of Reading actually was working on one of those tools that you just described of translating vision to taste, into taste uh, awareness. But, but going back to your book, perhaps one of the reasons why I really absolutely loved it, especially part three, was that in a way, and please correct me if I'm wrong, in a way it's a polemic for free will. Mm. It starts with there's always a way out mm-hmm. and it kind of ends at that kind of realm, doesn't it? And, yeah. And I, is it yeah. fair to say then, therefore, that if there is always a way out, then you can put the argument that in a way it's a polemic for free will? Um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could say that. I mean, I, I'm not sure I consciously wrote it as a, as a polemic for free will, but, but I think that that is kind of, kind of the conclusion conclusion I reached uh, through the writing process in in, uh, in in sort of in terms of considering this identity question that that uh, that are we are we trapped by by uh, uh, who we who we have made ourselves to be and, and yeah I think the ultimate answer is that there is a way out and that leads me to my previous question again right because I ask you were you a determinist before writing the book and, and then the follow-up is of course how did did it change after writing a trilogy on the topic or did it or did it just reaffirm your starting beliefs? Because it seems to me that it sort of reaffirmed your starting beliefs that we do have free will. Yeah, I, I think I think I, I, I sort of uh, I think I held more or less the same same opinion when 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 I started writing. But but maybe it sort of sort of put it to to a test uh, along along the way and uh, helped me to to refine 
refine my thinking. And so now you are even stronger believer in free will. <laughs> mm -hmm. For some definition of free will, yes. I mean, uh, or I mean, I guess I'm 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 a be believer in the ability of human beings to change and become better. Uh, exactly. So, mm -hmm. as, as long as we're not prisoners of our past or past personas and past actions, then that to me is, is a pretty pretty good definition. Um, where does transhumanism and posthumanism fit within your plot? Um, that's a good question. I, I... We, we discovered that the singularity doesn't figure there. There's no super intelligent artificial general intelligence. So where does, in, you, you mentioned mind uploading, where does transhumanism and posthumanism come into play? Well, I, I guess it's kind of ubiquitous in, in, in the... Um in the setting so uh it very much comes from my my own fascination with with the subject the, the sort of possibility of uh um sort of transcending our physical bodies and or, or sort of widening the pos this the sort of space of of possible forms of uh human existence so so i, I was sort of um uh, when I was studying at university in the sort of from I guess 1997 onwards, I, I kind of started reading uh, transhumanist uh, writers, and then then sort of both in terms of fiction and and nonfiction, and became very uh, very fascinated by by that. Give kind me of some thinking. examples, please. Uh, so so I guess uh, the maybe the first probably the first people I might have encountered around that time would have been Anders Sandberg, uh, and. Uh, uh, and his sort of writings online, and then then uh, sort of Marvin Minsky and and uh, and Hans Moravec and and uh, and that crowd. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, Hans Moravec's book Mind Children was quite a quite a, quite a strong influence. I uh, uh, I was uh, quite blown away. Of those three you mentioned, Hans is the only person I haven't interviewed on this. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Um, and um, yeah, so so then then obviously uh, uh, on the science fictional side, there were there were people like Werner Vinge and, and Charlie and uh, and and so on. Um, and um, um, sort of, I, I think I then then kind of also. Uh, uh, expanded to uh, philosophers who who kind of had had worked on things that uh, were related, like uh, Douglas Hofstadter and uh, and uh, Daniel Dennett and uh, Max Moore, perhaps. Um, not sure. Well, well, I'm sure. I'm sure I must have read something by by Max Moore as well. Uh, oh, and Robin Hanson as as well was, was sort of. I, I think the kind of upload economics thinking uh, in the Quantum Thief books was very strongly influenced by him. Um, mm. I'm sorry to hear that. The biggest disagreement I've ever had with somebody on my show was with Robin Hanson. <laughs> uh -huh. No, no, I mean, I, mean uh, I think, again, again, sort of the, the uh, caveat I always have to make in terms of a lot of the, lot of the not necessarily the sort of thematic elements, but uh, the, the sort of actual details of technology and economics in the Quantum Thief series are much more about creating a framework for telling the interesting story than necessarily reflecting what I genuinely think about uh, the the future or 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 uh, or, or uh, transhumanism. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I sort of um, there, there was maybe uh, a period when I uh, when I did this. This is maybe maybe I, I must say that uh, I have probably been also influenced a lot by conversations with Charlie uh, uh, on, on these, these topics, uh, I started to feel also that uh, at least in some branches of uh, transhuman and posthuman uh, or singularitarian thinkers, there, there was uh, maybe a little bit too much of sort of pseudo-religious fervor for, for my, my liking. And uh, that, sort of, that, that then made me also try to think more about uh, 
what would be the more negative implications or, or, or scarier scenarios of, of uh, what, what might, uh, might arise with mind uploading and so on. Oh, I, I should mention uh, that I did also read quite a lot of the writings of Eliezer Yudkovsky at one point, which, was, uh, which uh, I was very fascinated by. Um, Let me ask you then, because you, you mentioned that you sort of perceived some kind of religious fervor when it came to, to the singularity. I mean, others have called it rupture of the nerds. Uh, Jaron Lanier called it uh, the church of robotics uh, and so on. So what's your take on the technological singularity? Um, I think the, the sort of maybe, maybe uh, uh, I kind of still um, am more fascinated by um, sort of Werner Vinge's definition of singularity as this kind of event horizon event horizon precisely the point beyond which we cannot predict but but sort of uh, it, it does make me I, I, I sort of find it um, a bit problematic to think that there is this sort of one singularity that there is a singular singularity if, if, if you like that that the sort of emergence of uh, uh, super intelligence is is inevitable, or 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 uh, or, or that there is this uh, very definitive endpoint to to all this that we are we're we're heading towards. But where, whereas to me it seems more like the, the sort of it's a bit like this multiversal universal explosion we were talking about earlier that the sort of space of possible paths is is constantly uh, expanding, and, and and there is this event horizon uh, uh, before us in the I, I guess. Uh, Sort of only two or three decades now beyond which it becomes very hard to see what's what's uh, happening. Yeah, I, I can empathize with that because there's a lot of people in the community that kind of see this kind of manifest destiny, this kind of teleological sort of fulfillment, if you will, in the the reaching of the singularity. Uh, but I, I personally don't share that myself, and I, I like to consider it like you as as one of those sort of future scenarios, even though I would say it's, it's a very possible, highly probable scenario in my estimate. But going back to, to that kind of criticism of the idea of the singularity, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why Charlie Strauss, for example, in his conversation, he said that elegant, elegant ideas that explain everything are usually wrong. <laughs> and another one of my favorite uh, sci-fi authors, Carl Schroeder, he said that the singularity is a lens to look at the future, but it's only one of many lenses that you can take on and sort of glance forward and see what, what comes up next. Uh, so I think those two people have had profound effect on, on the way I, I perceive it personally. But... Uh, Speaking of religious fervor, let me ask you, are you religious in any way yourself? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I sort of uh, <clears throat> quite frequently I have the same relationship with uh, religion that I have with football. I mean, I appreciate the fact that a lot of people are get very exci <laughs> exci excited about it, but I, I somehow don't quite... Uh, quite understand uh, what's what's going on uh, now now uh, uh, I mean it's not to be down on either religion or football but uh, the the um, I mean so 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 I mean I I, I do do kind of uh, I, I have had experiences of what you might call sublime or, or the kind of uh, have you? Uh, please it, share I mean I mean in terms of, of uh, I, I would say in terms of um, 
sort of very beautiful things or, or experience, things, things that relate to experiencing nature or, or experiencing something uh, very deep and profound in, in mathematics or science, uh, where, where, where usually it's associated with suddenly sort of seeing lots of connections between seemingly unconnected things or, or just being overwhelmed by, by uh, the vastness of, uh, of, of something. So, so I think that is probably close to, to some sort of religious experience. Uh, I don't know if, I'm sure we could now, now try to actually, I, I think in fact there has, have, has been a recent attempt to uh, quantify how mathematicians experience uh, mathematics. So there was a brain imaging experiment, experiment where uh, I think it was shown that uh, mathematicians literally find beautiful equations beautiful. So, so the same regions of their brain activate as they would be looking at a beautiful painting or something like that. But um, uh, I am fascinated by religion and, and even perhaps more fascinated than, than by organized religion, I'm fascinated by mythology. So I am uh, very uh, intrigued uh, by all the sort of complex systems of narrative and, and story that we have created over, over time. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, again, again sort of, um, I guess my influences are, are obvious that I'm, I'm, I kind of, uh, I'm interested in, in the ideas of Dennett and others of, of uh, Religion as a kind of kind of uh, self-replicating meme complex that uh, that that sort of um, can be understood uh, from a sort of semi-biological point of view, but um, yeah, as, as 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 in terms of having sort of personal religious views, I, I don't really really uh, have any. Mm -hmm. and, and that's naturally one of the the reasons why you sort of tend to avert from the singularity as a as a sort of somewhat of a religious meme maybe maybe i mean there's also i think lately especially um i've been reading quite a lot about um the history of kind of similar ideas in the past i, I think some something that comes up already in um in um, the quantum thief books is the philosophy of uh, Nikolai Fedorov in, uh, in in sort of the Russian cosmism movement, uh, and uh, more recently I've been reading uh, about a very strange character called uh, John Murray Spear, uh, a a spiritualist who who was very active uh, in the 1850s in New England, who um, basically in his thinking uh, you have the kind of um, same kind of entanglement of uh, sort of the possibility of immortality, sort of utopian social social reform, the sort of overwhelming power of technology, uh, and and he kind of already paints a picture of of a kind of technological singularity in the 1850s, and uh, it's sort of I don't know I mean looking at sort of the previous iterations of the the singularity meme if you like or 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 the rapture meme whatever it is, um, it is sort of hard not to to be a little bit cautious that are we are we not just I mean of course there are many things that are that are different today than than in the 1850s but uh, it's sort of hard not to be a little bit cautious to uh, by by saying that okay are we really uh, different from from uh, uh, people people of that time and 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 the way they were perhaps lured by the same biases Samuel Butler is another great example of the same age with his book Erichorn. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, that's uh, I've I've been uh, looking into that as well. So so Darwinian evolution amongst machines. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, no, it's it's sort of remarkable how how many uh, sort of truly uh, seemingly modern ideas you can find in in the in the nineteenth century and even before. I mean, uh, uh, 
Hanu, let me throw in here the last um, uh, question that I have about the fractal, uh, about the, the Quantum Thief uh, trilogy, and it's, a, it's an audience question. And then we're, we're going to unfortunately have to move on to the concluding uh, couple of questions that I have for you. So this is a question submitted to me by David Roscheck, and he says this. At the end of the Fractal Prince, Mili is shot from the disintegrating Perhunen into space and finds herself near the Zoku Jewel, which previously Chen has been in possession of. Where does that Zoku Jewel come from? And then the follow-up is, in an interview, you alluded to the Finnish version being better because you discovered and fixed the plot hole. Was this the plot hole or was it something else? Uh, so that wasn't the plot hole. Uh, the plot hole was uh, plot hole was uh, something else. But uh, so to answer this uh, Zoku jewel question, so so it's not the jewel that Matic Chen has. Uh, so so it's it's the jewel. It's the rainbow Zoku jewel that Meili and John use uh, in some of the early chapters to hack into this Zoku router. And uh, it's actually from Mars. So 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 John stole it from from one of the uh, Martian Zoku members, uh, sort of uh, in the. Uh, in the previous book, so so it's uh, yeah. I think I think it is explained where it comes from. So that's that's the jewel. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my recollection of the facts, but but somehow uh, or, or similar to that anyway. Was it the, in one of the rooms of that sort of uh, prison where he was fighting with him, his other self, the gardener, and was kind of running out, and he sort of picked it up from from a box. Uh, no, there, there is a. He picks up the Schrödinger box uh, in in that that uh, scene. But uh, there there is a sort of a very brief brief flashback scene in one of the early Fractal Prince chapters that has to do with uh, Pixel's resurrection party, and uh, and John has a conversation with one of the uh, Martian Zoku members, and then then he steals uh, one of his his Zoku jewels. Uh, so which 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 is this rainbow rainbow jewel that they then use. Fantastic, excellent. Okay, so I hope uh, David is happy with this clarification. Now, let me ask you, what's next for Hanura Animi? Tell us a little bit about your next book or your next work. You, you already shared uh, the, the sort of the biotech, nanotech company that you're becoming part of as a project at SU. What, what other things do you have on the horizon? You said you're working on a new book. Can you share something about that with us? Yeah, certainly. So, so it is kind of related to some of the themes that I already alluded to. Um, so, so effectively, it's taking the idea of um, it, it's it's playing this game of uh, what we also talked about of um, taking some assumptions and deriving consequences from them, even if those assumptions are quite fantastical. And and in, in this case, uh, the assumptions are that um, some of the stranger ideas of the nineteenth-century spiritualists turn out to be true. Uh, so, so we have a world where interaction, very direct interaction with the afterlife is possible and a col completely alternative technology uh, around, around that uh, possibility gets, gets developed with very profound sort of effects on obviously how history unfolds and, and uh, what happens to, to human society. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really um, sort of came from the observation that actually in the 19th century, or late 19th century especially, so many new things were happening in science that uh, it was kind of hard to, to separate 
the strange ideas from from quite realistic ideas and th there was this backlash against um darwinism so so it seemed to to the 19th century philosophers uh and scientists that that darwin's theory kind of uh took away the possibility of god and with the possibility of god sort of the the foundation of uh, morali morality and, and ethics. If there was sort of no afterlife punishment, what was it, it was sort of sort of this early existential uh, crisis, if if you like. Those were and, just uh, some of them, and and those were mostly the more religious ones. Because I, well, to me, that uh, was one of yeah. his greatest accomplishments. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not arguing against that, but but it's just uh, so so how I mean, obviously, religion was much more pervasive uh, in society at the time than it is today, um, and and so then the conclusion was that. Uh, a lot of very serious thinkers, uh, including sort of physicists like William Crookes and, and, and many others, started to consider the possibility that uh, could there be some sort of scientific explanation of the afterlife, uh, uh, which would actually incorporate Darwin's evolutions uh, in, in some way. Um, a guy called Frederick Myers, one of the founders of uh, the Society for Psychic Research, actually came up with a framework where Darwinian evolution kind of continues in the afterlife, where, where there is this uh, sort of uh, 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 evolution after death, and, and how, how where, where souls actually kind of become more advanced than they were in life, and, and that, that actually there are these super intelligences beyond on the on the other side. That then actually uh, he believed we're trying to make contact with humanity and, and trying to to give humanity tools to 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 improve themselves. And there are there are some absolutely crazy historical figures that uh, that turn up. So, for example, there was a, uh, together with Myers, there was a, um, uh, one of Britain's uh, prime ministers, Arthur Balfour, and, and a group around him were convinced that these super intelligent uh, spirits were trying to instruct them in um, creating a vessel for uh, a perfect engineered soul uh, from from the afterlife that that, that these these uh, spirits wanted to to inject into our world to to kind of act as a as a savior or or a messiah uh, and uh, and they believed took this so seriously that uh, Balfour's brother had an affair with a high society woman to actually produce this vessel um, who in our world sort of turned out to be uh, relatively normal but uh, not necessarily in the in the uh, uh, book uh, that I'm working on and there is also there's, there's there, there are also other other interesting threads I, I mentioned John Murray Spear um, so a little bit earlier in in New England uh, he, and him and his friends actually tried to build um, a thing they called the new motor which was some sort of machine messiah actually so so they were or or, or sort of a combination of an artificial intelligence and a perpetuum mobile so uh, uh, a source of infinite energy, but also a sentient artificial being uh, that was also supposed to be self-replicating. And uh, in, in Spears' writings and sort of writings of the contemporaries, it is described in some detail as, as being this complex mechanical uh, system with, made out of a combination of uh, exotic gems and minerals that can be programmed by thought. And, uh, and they, they really do describe the process of uh, trying to get it to work uh, in terms of... Um, the the um, the people working on creating it as imprinting their thoughts uh, onto this device in a very sort of well defined way and it, it's, it's sort of hard to hard not to interpret it uh, as as a as a some sort of process of programming um, so 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 yeah and and clearly clearly the, the sort of creation of this machine was going to lead to a kind of a singularity. Um,
very interesting. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm kind of a little skeptical about that whole exploration about the the afterlife and so on. But why not? <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> I should be a little more open-minded about that too. Uh, and the previous example, by the way, that you gave kind of reminded me a little bit to one of the former prime ministers of Canada, Mackenzie King. Mm. Oh, interesting. Who said once that his best uh, advisor was his mom and major decisions of his life were taken after consulting with his mom. For example, Canada's participation in World War II and all that. See, the only problem was that his mom has been dead for a decade. I see, I see. So, <laughs> so he kept consulting her for many, many years about major policy decisions <laughs> after she's been dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, but just to just to elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, the reason why I've kind of chosen chosen this uh, uh, approach rather than rather than sort of more uh, hard science fictional approach, uh, I, I think, is is that um, I, I do find it, as I said, very very fascinating how how the, the how closely some of these ideas resemble uh, modern ideas, and uh, and it is sort of interesting then to take our our conceptions of uh, of death and uh, and afterlife. And sort of project them against this uh, uh, backdrop of history, and uh, and take some of these seemingly crazy ideas that uh, these people had, and, and and try to see what would have been the logical conclusion had they actually been been true. So so I, it's sort of an interesting toy box to to play with. And I know for a fact that you do have the the skills and the tools to make it a very interesting experience, and and and. Probably one that I would undertake as soon as the book comes out. Hanno, <laughs> uh, we've been talking for about 90 minutes by now. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, our interview has to come to an end. I have to let you go and, and focus on your more productive activities, such as writing. But my usual two questions are these. Uh, the first one is, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Uh, so I, I think uh, actually at the moment I have uh, not that much uh, online presence. So so I, I mostly uh, tweet. But um, uh, yeah, I think I think the best uh, way is probably through through my books. So, uh, so there's uh, there's uh, there are the, the Quantum Thief books, and I also have a short story collection coming out uh, next year, which will sort of compile some of my uh, shorter fiction from the past uh, few years together. So so I think those are probably the best place to start. I want to ask you if there's a single thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this long conversation with you, what would you like that to be? What do you think is the most important message you want to send out? Hmm. <laughs> Let me think about that for, for a moment. Yeah, of course. We touched on a very, very wide variety of topics. So... You choose what you want to focus our attention on as a parting message. I think the first first thing that does come to my mind is really um, sort of embracing the power of fiction to to wear somebody else's skin and look look uh, look through somebody's somebody else's eyes uh, does give us this power to. Uh, explore worlds uh, that do not exist but perhaps could exist um, and, um, uh, and yeah ask, ask uh, very big and grand 
questions and 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 sort of if, if not completely answer them at least uh at least sort of uh understand better why we ask those questions in the first place so yeah self self knowledge uh through through looking at looking through other people's eyes is probably uh kind of one of the things that um is very important uh for for me at least on the sort of fictional side of side of things that uh um that I do so yeah I think that's a that's actually a fantastic point to end our interview at and I just want to remind that to our viewers and listeners who have been sticking around for for this uh 90 minutes that the first and best quotes that they tweet from this interview within the next week or so and or share uh, under the YouTube video, the first three would receive a copy of your book, The Causal Angel. Uh, so uh, let's see who would be the lucky one. <laughs> Great. Hanu Rayanimi, thank you very much for spending so much time with us today. Really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure and thank you very much.